first player from Japan to win this Masters tournament in the 85th plane. The country celebrates a dream realized, and what a moment for that man. It gives me great pleasure to introduce to you the 2021 Masters champion, Hideki Matsuyama. Welcome to week 34, counting week 34 of Shark Sports Radio. Alongside of me is nobody. It's yours truly, Mark Loisel Jr., a.k.a. Shark, right here in the Ocean State. And the great irony with the number 34 as of late is, yes, we got the truth. Paul Pierce. Is it too early or too late? We don't know, but I will say Big Poppy, as always, is a good number uh, for the number 34 with, especially now with the Red Sox sitting in the driver's seat in the AL East in this early season. You can always tune in to your Apple Podcast, SoundCloud, and Spotify app. And as always, you can also check us out on Twitter at SSR2019 underscore and Facebook on the Shark Sports Radio page. And we are currently live. Yes, we are live on Twitter and Instagram. Appreciate all of you taking the dive into the tank tonight. As you heard in the intro, shout out to DMX and also Matsuyama. Hideki Matsuyama winning the first Japanese Masters. What a great time to be alive for Hideki Matsuyama and Japan. It's really nice to see, and we'll get into the Masters and all that jazz. Along with the Celtics, the Bruins, the Red Sox, they have all caught stride in their winning ways. And it is time to talk about the new additions, the transitions in consistency, along with a mindset change. Yes, a mindset change for all the better for all the teams. So let's get right into it. We have to talk about the Masters. The Masters was a fantastic event. I just look and can't fathom the fact that there's so many great young talent and so many international guys to look for. And moving forward, you know, the big thing with this is even with Tiger out, golf is still fun to watch. Can we all agree? You know, you got Bryson DeChambeau hitting bombs. You got Will Zalatoris, a guy that shouldn't even been in it, and he was. He was fantastic. He kept stride the entire way, and he gave Hideki uh, Matsuyama, along with Xander Shoffley, a run for their money down the stretch. And just can't, you know, overlook the fact that this Masters tournament, it was in November, and now it's in April. It's good to see golf really catching stride in a very vibrant way. Kudos to the Masters you know, program and association for putting on a show. Every year they put on a show, right? It's like March Madness. It's, it's, you can't miss it. You, know, you have to have parties. You got, you got to enjoy it. Um, I hung out at my you know, friend's house, Dan Spaghetti. Shout out to him with all my good friends. And you know, we sat down watching it, the event. I just don't understand why people wouldn't want to. You know, It's the final round. It's always a good time. And... You know, you have to really take in that moment. The Masters is one of the America's greatest tournaments to ever be played. And so it's like the Super Bowl. It's March Madness, as I said. So if I'm looking at the future of golf, it is really, really nice to see what this young talent and international players have done. You know, you got Hideki Matsuyama from Japan winning the first Masters for the country of Japan. You have John Rahm from Spain. The Spaniard has been unbelievable. He's been hitting the ball with such a gigantic stroke, but soft touch. 
And he's going to find a way to win his first major. It's just a matter of when. When I talk about major, I'm talking about the Masters. I really think to solidify yourself in the golfing world, you really got to win this event. And if I'm looking at Cameron Smith from Australia, that guy caught stride early and he was consistent throughout. I think he was around three under or two under, some of that nature. And then you got Corey Connors from Canada. Um, so a lot of young guys, a lot of young pieces to build off of the golf world in order for it to be entertaining. You know, Bryson DeChambeau, everybody loves him because, you know, he's just different, right? He's, he's a guy that you can always count on to hit the big, the big bombs. But at the same time, does he really have that soft touch around the putting greens and, you know, chipping? Uh, I think that's really, really key in golf. I mean, I, I play golf on the regular and as of late, I understand the little mechanics. It can take a lot out of you if you're not there mentally. If you're you know, too strong of, of a passionate player, you're not going to last in the sport of golf. You're not. If you kind of take it with stride, even keel every single hole, uh, a lot of times that can definitely take you know, advantage and, and benefit you moving forward because on to the next hole. That That's all the mindset with the board of golf. So I really think the Masters, like I said, put on a show, especially 2021 with the COVID situation. And it's just been a gigantic moment for Hideki Masayama, who just really did well in the first round and, you know, kept striding the second, held his ground in the third. Justin Rose was trying to make a, a giant leap. And we all know Justin Rose. He just He's a guy that, you know, he gets in his head and it goes away from him. And Jordan Spieth, same thing. Like I said, the Masters was a great tournament this year. And I look forward to more. And I look forward to some of these younger golfers and the international players really keep up with the good players that have, you know, arise like Jordan Spieth, Justin Thomas. Like I said, moving forward into the future, it's going to be really, really nice to see. That being said, I want to definitely give a shout out to Julian Edelman, uh, I know he announced his retirement, you know, hours in the night here. And Julian Edelman is one character of a guy, right? If you could characterize his legacy, I guess you could say, or Patriots legacy, a guy that gave it his all every time he stepped onto the field. I'm a Dolphins fan, and I can see it every single time that, you know, he plays Miami or every time he plays the Jets, Bills, Chiefs, whoever it may be. He's going to take a shot every single game, but at the same time, fight for every single yard. And this is a kudos to him because he has allowed himself to be at least in the conversation for Hall of Fame. Now, is he Hall of Fame status? He's going to be in the Patriots Hall of Fame. Excuse me. He will be in the Patriots Hall of Fame. You know, 11 seasons, right? He had 620 receptions. 6,822 yards, you know, 11 yards perception, and then 36 touchdowns. I know injuries have caught up with him, and it was just a monumental moment when Tom Brady allowed him to become the next Wes Welker. It was like a plug-and-play type situation. I, I remember at point blank, Wes Welker went to Denver, and then Julian Edelman stepped in, and he did one hell of a job. He did. He held his own, come from, I believe, Kent State, you know, a school that Obviously, nobody looks at except for Bill Belichick and Robert Kraft. Um, shout out to them for getting you know Julian Edelman and getting him acclimated quickly into the system and the short throws and the yards after catch. I can't remember another player besides Wes Walker, right? That a guy that really fought for every single yard, yards after catch. He he was tremendous. 
you got to hold Julian Edelman accountable when it comes to injuries. Injuries play a factor in every single sport, but with football, it's really, really tough to evaluate a player if he's in and out every single year. And Julian Edelman, as of late, which you know has arose to a, a retirement announcement, I look at that and say he gave it his all. He can't give any more, and you know it's time to hang it up now. Does he deserve to be in the Hall of Fame? That's borderline for me. The guy's a gamer. He's a winner. He's won Super Bowl championships. The seventh round of the 2009 draft. Like, you got to look at that and say, Tom Brady came out, what, the last round? So I think Julian Edelman is exactly what the Patriots Hall of Fame needs. I don't necessarily think he'll make it to the Hall of Fame, Football Hall of Fame. Because Football Hall of Fame... Yes, you can have championships, but you also have to have the stats. The stats is really what's key. A good example, too, in my eyes, would be Calvin Johnson versus Julian Edelman. I mean, Calvin Johnson put up unbelievable amount of stats. Yes, he retired early, but the injuries don't really take a toll on him. It's more that that side effect with Julian Edelman is just like Dustin Pedroia. If I had to compare the two you look at Dustin Pedroia, how much he gave it all. Dirt dog on the on the, the diamond. He's exactly what the Red Sox needed. His face, his character, you know, his playing days was was everything and more. And people remember him because he's tiny, but he had a big heart. And that's the same exact thing with Julian Edelman. So again, I'm not a Patriots fan, but if I was to give my shrine to Julian Edelman, it's it's a bravo, kudos to you on a terrific career. And, of course, Tom Brady allowed it to happen, but those yards after catch can't get overlooked. He's just across the board tremendous when it comes to yards after catch. Moving on, DMX, shout out to him, the late, great DMX. You know, my brother saw him probably at Lupo's in Providence. He could see that he was kind of losing it. You know, look at the Versus video. I think it was him and Snoop Dogg. And it was just, it was troubling to see him, you know, lose the lyrics and, and stumble upon what his songs used to be. So it was really, really sad to see him go because you know what the struggles he's been through. But he will go down as everybody knows. You know, you talk about up in here, you can talk about an X gonna give it to you. Rough Riders Anthem, which was in the intro. So shout out to DMX, RIP. You know, he was the guy that pumped you up. No matter who you were, if you listened to the music, the instrumentals will pump you up. I've been listening to instrumentals the entire night trying to figure out uh, what would be a good instrumental for Hideki Matsuyama you know, being announced the Masters Champion. So um, I thought Rough Riders Anthem was a fit, and it did have a nice ring to it too in the beginning. So shout out to, again, DMX, uh, RIP to the late great DMX. The Boston Bruins made a nice little trade before everyone woke up. The Bruins are sitting at fourth in the East Division, 21 and 12. But they're ranked 19th in the NHL when it comes to goals per game. It's really, really good to see him fulfill the need. He hasn't done that in the past. Got a couple of scraps here and there. You know, guys that come to my mind are like Charlie Coyle and Nick Ritchie. Like, I guess he put a good amount of pieces together in order for the Bruins to be successful, but... This year, it seems like he's going all in. I I really think the acquisition of Taylor Hall is an ideal solution and situation for Taylor Hall. I don't know from a a Bruins standpoint. I don't. Um, The fact that the guy's been hopping, you know, back and forth through teams, Devils with the Buffalo Sabres, 
Edmonton Oilers, but I look at his body of work. Um, his MVP numbers was just tremendous. Um, I think he had around 90-point season uh, to get that MVP. It might have been surpassing 100. But Taylor Hall has the ability to be a plug-and-play type of situation with the Bruins right now because they need that goal advantage. They, they need somebody to come in and make them advantageous in order to make themselves offensively uh, perform at a stellar pace. Now, if you look at goals per game, like I said, 2.72 goals per game, they desperately need some help in that category. And so they got Taylor Hall, okay? They got Curtis Lassard, who was the center with the Sabres, and then they got defenseman Mike Riley from the Senators. And I, I feel like Mike Riley just a good veteran have, right? A guy that you could just put on the ice and he can, you know, defend, and that's exactly what the Bruins need. Now, a guy that comes to my mind, I'm picturing now, Tukarask. I have a headache with Tukarask because Vladar's been playing well, Swayman's been playing well, and I feel like Tukarask got hurt due to the fact, or say it unhealthy, due to the fact that he could have got traded. And I heard this past weekend through my friends, and I totally agree with it, and I'm not stealing their point. I just want to add to it. I think the way that the Bruins are made right now, they have to, what, pay $7 million for Tukarask on an annual value salary. And I can't look at Tuka Rask and say, this guy puts you over the top. They need guys that just know their roles. I know back in the day when you know Sean Thornton and Nathan Horton and Tyler Sagan and Patrice Bertrand, Marchand, you look back at that uh, championship back in 2011, the Bruins had exactly what the makeup should have been in order for them to make it to the Stanley Cup Finals and win the Stanley Cup. So what I see right now in the Bruins is they got a troubling goalie situation because, well, not troubling from a performance standpoint, it's a matter of do we want to keep the roster intact, the continuity, you know, just to keep it going? Or should we put a pause on it, make a move? But they can't make a move now, right? Trade deadline happened. But what I'm saying is in the offseason, maybe Tukarask is traded. I can definitely say that with Vladar's playing and way that Swayman's playing. I think that Tukarask can be ultimately be walking out the door and also be held accountable. You know, I, I just go back to the COVID situation. I know everyone has walked through those doors, whether that be your own workplace or if you're an athlete. Got it. You're the first responders. Shout out to them. You need to ultimately know that you're going to do your job on a day-to-day basis and you're going to work hard, right? And the fact that Tuka Rask in the bubble, the NHL bubble, said, you know what? No, I'm going to push this aside. There's no fans in the crowd. I can't see my family. I look at that and say, like, that's a big F you to the Boston Bruins. And I don't think it's been the same. I think a lot of the players were, you know, not happy about it. And I get it. I get it. You know, you want to be with your families. People have different mindsets. I get it, but everybody's going through it. That's why I can't get out of my head is, okay, Tukaras was too soft mentally to play in important games for the Bruins and at least continue his legacy as the starting goalie for the Bruins. Whether that's a yes or no question, if he's going to be out, remains to be the same. In my eyes, I want him gone. And the reason why I do is because, and I know he's a good goalie. Trust me, he's a great goalie. But you need to have a guy 
that can just be there, be a leader, and ultimately make every player on his team better. And if he can't, and if he's going to sit out, and if he's going to be a whiny baby throughout COVID, which everyone's living in, I'd say see ya. That just doesn't hold yourself accountable. It gives you zero credibility when it comes to um, clutch times when your team needs you. That's a big F you and slap in the face to the Boston Bruins. It's not a good look for Tuka Rask. And moving forward, if he does get traded, hopefully it's a clean you know, sweep for him. And it's you know a fresher breath there. I hope he does well. But for me, I don't care how good he is. Okay, I can plug in Vladar. I can plug in Swayman the way he's been playing. I can make the playoffs stretch even without Tuka Rask. I guess that's a knock on Tuka Rask. I didn't mean to go on that rant and tangent, but for me, you got to bring something to the table and your team needs you and you just walk out. It's the biggest punch in the balls I think any player could have ever experienced. And again, everybody has their issues. I get it, but not for me. If I'm the Bruins organization, I'm looking past it, saying, see ya, you're trading this offseason. These guys are playing and you know, you're injured and we're paying you $7 million. $7 million. Can you name somebody that can make that kind of money just sitting out the rest of the season when the playoffs are on the line? $7 million that guy got paid. Ridiculous. I do want to get to the Mighty Duck series. Okay, this is fun for me. You know, I think it was 1992. I think I was one years old. I'm not giving myself credit. 30 years old. Feel like an old man, but especially looking at this uh, Disney Plus new series. Um, you know, with the Mighty Ducks. And Coach Gordon Bombay, if you haven't seen it, I'm telling you, it's nostalgic. It brings you back. It's a classic. You just have to take it all in. You know, I believe uh, Charlie Conway makes an appearance, Gunnar Stahl. I'm not going to give you any more, but the Mighty Ducks series, you know, up until I would say D2 because D3 for me, you know, going to the academy, switching up the coach. You just didn't have, like, a good feel for it. Um, but the Mighty Ducks original was great. D2, Team USA was fantastic. It's just good to see Disney bring that back. And I'm telling you, if you watch the series, I don't want to give too much away because I don't know how many people have watched this series. But it is great. And the music brings you back. Gordon Bay brings you back. Even the team, you look at the team and you say, wow, this team sucks. Like, they are no good shape to win. They're no good shape to win, but they do. But yeah, no, the Mighty Ducks is a great series. Uh, I feel like it's going to only get better. Uh, I guess it's called the Mighty Ducks Game Changers, the Game Changers. Um, It's on Disney+. Plus. So if you have the chance, check it out. It is going to be a lot of goosebumps. I I got it when I I watched it because, like I said, the movie was built in 1992 and I think it was 1993 was D2. I could be off on that, but I believe they went back to back. I mean, I, I was born in 1991. So, you know, I didn't watch it right away. It took me some time, like, you know, when I was five, 10 years old. So the Celtics, the Celtics have always been a touchy subject for me this year. I've gone through it. I probably squeezed as much on that sponge as possible, but I will say I'm proud. I'm proud of the Celtics in this stretch. I believe they've won five of the last six games. Some are pretty, some are not. And a lot has been talked about, you know, with the Celtics shooting threes. The way that Brad Stevens' offense is built, it's off of 
analytics. It's off of how many chances can I get in order to you know make myself advantageous throughout the game. And of course, their offensive sets are not the prettiest and not. And when they get stagnant and complacent, that's when you shake your head and that's when you know Marcus Smart downtown three is coming and it's going to break. Now, <laughs> ironically, Marcus Smart passed Larry Legend, Bird. Yes, Larry Bird, an all-time threes made for the Celtics or organization. But I look at the Celtics currently, not to get off track. The Celtics have the ability to be in every single game. The point that I want to make is, when do you take those threes? Okay, I don't have an issue with you taking threes earlier in the game, but it's going to catch up to you if you start going one for 14 or two for 16, which we've seen constantly. No knock on the Celtics the way that they've been shooting the ball lately, okay? They, they've been shooting 37% throughout this stretch, and they shot 37% currently within this season, and that's no knock on them. It's just a matter of when these threes come into play. Because if you're going on a run, if you're the opponent, okay, and you have it easy on defense, that gives you confidence moving forward into the offensive end and get easy buckets, especially if transition defense is irrelevant, which sometimes, especially if the bench players are in, the Celtics have a, a lack of a wherewithal when it comes to getting back on defense. Transition defense is the most important part of a defensive team. If you want to be a good defensive team, you got to get back on defense. You can't lollygag, get back on you know defense in a slow motion pace, which they've done. Jason Tatum cries for fouls. Jalen Brown cries for fouls. Kemba Walker, so on and so forth. So if I'm looking at the bigger picture with the Celtics currently within their state, their five wins, they have the ability to legitimately break runs for the opposing team. But they have the ability to let 27-point margins happen. Sorry, 27 might be too much. 15 to 20-point margins, more like it. 15 to 20-point margin in, this, in a game. Do you know how hard that is to get back in it? We're seeing it. <laughs> we are seeing it with the Celtics. They have tried to come back in games and they fall short. If you have a lack of effort, that's never good. They've had lack of effort, and I know they're two games over by above 500, and I know there's a lot of Eastern Conference teams that kind of have the same Celtics theme, like they can't get over that hump, and they're always going to be within the four to eight seed range unless they get over that hump. The way that they're currently constituted I do feel like Evan Fournier helps immensely. I do think the fact that Daniel Tice leaves, Rob Williams gets more minutes. Bo Wagner can you know, sit the bench as far as I'm concerned. He just, he's out of control. Um, Luke Cornett, you know, you know how he is. He, he's a guy that I guess pick and pop type of situation for three is nice, but let's not over-exaggerate. He's definitely a guy that's going to be off the bench like nine or 10th guy. I don't think the bench really has had a factor in this winning way. What I think is the stars are finally waking up and saying, okay, our team is not as talented as we think, and we need to start winning games to make it make a strong push, at least for the second round, 
or you know Eastern Conference Finals, which I just think will not happen. But I think second rounds a possibility. But when you're fighting for second rounds and you have you know banners up in the rafters, what are you playing for? You're playing for I guess Celtics pride is, is the main thing. Consistency, continuity. Brad Stevens emphasizes it every single season. He wants guys to stay on the court. Well, it's tough because of the COVID situation. And trust me, I, I think hit it hard, hit it tremendously hard with the COVID situation. And Romeo Lankford just touched the court like a week ago, but he hasn't like been able to catch stride. And now the Celtics are 28 and 26, and now they have to catch stride. Now they have to do it. So I think the Celtics, they're ready for a rude awakening if they think they can be down 17 points every single game. They're not going to come back every single game. And it's going to be a wear and tear on everyone's body if they keep playing like that. Because Kemble Walker, you know, he gets nights off of a back-to-back. But when you're down 17 to 20 points, it's not a good look for Kemble Walker. If he's got to play that stretch of game, that stretch of minutes, and it's not good. Jalen Brown, he's still nursed that injury. Obviously, everybody's banged up. Everybody has COVID situations. But these are important injuries that you got to keep an eye on, especially Kemba Walker. I guess 17 points, 20 points per game, you know, as good as he is, my goodness, he, he needs to stay healthy in order for the Celtics to make it the second round if they do. Okay, the seeds four through eight, I look at that and say, you don't want to play Brooklyn. You don't want to play. You don't want to play Milwaukee. Philly, see, Philly, in my eyes, they're a good team this year. Embiid's at MVP caliber. But again, I always talk about with the Doc Rivers situation. Doc Rivers is a great regular season coach. He is. He has one championship under his belt because we all know the big three really, really solidified that. But Doc Rivers with the Clippers, okay, he's always been in the top three in the West, but he hasn't done enough in order for himself to be, okay, a consistent coach in the playoffs. I think it's, it's amazing that this guy gets so much credit and he gets paid for one championship. And I get it. He's got a championship. Not a lot of people do. But when it comes to the playoffs, it's usually one and done or second round exit. That's just the way it goes. But again, not to keep off track, but Philly, in my eyes, is a team that could easily be beat in the playoffs. I really, really think so. Again, Ben Simmons, he has to perform well, and Bede can't just do it himself. So I think, you know, the shooters around them, they're good, but they're not great. They're, they can be easily defended. Now, the Celtics got their butts kicked. Hands down, they got their butts kicked against the Sixers. But I don't think that that's necessarily what the Philadelphia 76ers are going to do in the playoffs. I don't, because I think their talent is just not as good as they're playing right now. And I think the opponents, too, if you look at 4-8, through eight, which, you know, they have to play part of the Eastern Conference, it's kind of crap. You know, you got teams one game over 500, two games over 500 with the Celtics. Um, you got the Charlotte Hornets who are still in the mix, but they don't have LaMelo Ball. They don't have Gordon Hayward. So I look at that and say, all right, how many games are gimme games? Yeah, you know, I, I get it. You got to win your games. Hands down, Celtics have not done that. I'll give credit to Philly for doing that. But when it comes down to clutch times, when it comes down to playoff stretch, do they have the capability of taking over? In my eyes, I haven't seen it. And Philly has been a lack thereof with um, playoff experience. You know, Brett Brown was trashed in the playoffs. Let's just call it what it was. So I think Doc Rivers could 
you know, maybe elevate them slightly, but not a lot. We're, we're not talking them going to Eastern Conference Finals. It's Brooklyn and it's Milwaukee. Sign, seal, deliver that sucker. That ballot is going in. And that's exactly what teams are going to the Eastern Conference Finals. Unless a team like the Miami Heat, I'm not going to say the Celtics. I am not going to be the biggest homer and say the Boston Celtics are going to make it to the championship. That's not going to happen. That's not going to happen. It can't happen. Um, and it won't happen. Let's just get that straight. But I will say, if the Celtics don't make it to the playoffs, you can kind of see Brad Stevens start you know, shaking a little bit and saying, am I in the hot seat? That could be a possibility. But again, Celtics have won uh, five of the last six. Some, again, are pretty, some are not. You know, they could shoot 40% throughout the course of a game. This is, this is the factor in my eyes. They could shoot 40% throughout the course of the game from three and still lose because they take so many threes. They got to learn, especially throughout stretches, man. They can't start games 14 to five. They just can't. They've done it so many times this year, and they get caught up taking threes. Go to the hoop. They need to go to the hoop. Otherwise, if, if they don't have the ability to go to the hoop, then what are we actually, what, what, what are the Celtics actually doing? You know, they're trying to find the rhythm. They're trying to find their identity, but they're not going to the hoop. They're not playing Celtics basketball. I'll give you credit. 37% is pretty good, okay? But they got to keep it up. They shot, what, what was it, 21% recently? In my eyes, that just looks at it and says, well, they didn't get to the hoop. They just kept shooting and shooting and shooting and hoping it goes in. And you can't have that mindset. You just can't. You will never win games if you keep shooting threes, setbacks, pullbacks, whatever it is. 35-footers will not win you games. What will win you games is going to the hoop and asking for a foul. That's exactly what will happen. Now, you don't do that every single time, but you have the ability to kick it out because you're a force in the paint. Why is LeBron James so good at getting into the paint? Why does he have that mindset? He likes to get to the paint. You know why? Because defenses then come up to him, and they come in for help, and then he kicks it out for three. And he knows that his players, if he has a 38-40% shooter on the wing, it's going to help that team secure a victory, especially if you have a consistent and efficient shooter. The Celtics don't have that. You know, Evan Fournier, probably you can add that to the mix now. You know, Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum, right? But Marcus Smart, I, I'm not kicking out to Marcus Smart. I'm not kicking it out to Robert Williams. He can't shoot threes. You know, Luke Cornett, maybe knock down one here, you know, two here and there. Simi Ojale, you don't know with that team. And that's the issue. That they have an inconsistency, which is zero identity. Because if you don't have an identity, if you don't have the ability to get to the hoop and get back on defense and stop bickering about stupid calls, you got to get out of the mindset. That's going to wear you throughout the game mentally and physically. So if I'm the Celtics, I'm looking at, great, what have I done well throughout these games? And I'm putting emphasis on that, an emphasis of getting to the hoop because it has helped that team. And it has helped out Rob Williams on lobs and on offensive rebounds, you know. So I look at that ability when it comes to the Celtics 
you know, just trying to find their stride throughout the, you know, this last patch of the season. They really need to, you know, catch stride. Otherwise, they'll be seeing themselves on vacation. And we all know what that means is bad news for the Celtics, bad news for Brad Stevens, and bad news for these younger guys, their development. So let's talk about the Red Sox real quick. J.D. Martinez has been tremendous. He has hit 472 on the year. He's had five home runs. And he has found a way to make the make the Red Sox relevant again offensively. You talk about last year, I, I don't think they could even touch three runs per game, let alone two. I look at, you know, obviously Alex, Alex Cora back in the mix. That helps. Um, I look at, you know, Raphael Devers, the way he's been playing. Yes, he's batting 250, but he has an ability um, to hit the long bomb. Um, and at the same time with Raphael Devers, his strength, as good as his strength is, strikeouts happen. And he's got to be aware at the plate more and secure his batting average. Otherwise, you know, if you look at his batting average, I think it's 250. But he has like nine strikeouts on the year. I think what helps out this team is, you know, having a player's coach like Alex Cora to go to, you know, when things aren't going as well. And, and I mean, you know, they lost three straight, right, uh, at the beginning of the year. And then they, they caught stride. And I think a lot of that has to do with uh, a guy like Alex Cora um, either talking about his experiences or talking about the, you know, the weaknesses of the team and where they need to be better. And it seems like the offense now has become the catalyst. I look at the pitching subpar strength, if that makes sense. They are in the middle of the pack, which is fine, which is fine. They're going to have to somehow, you know, later in the year, really start to find momentum because if, you know, Eddie Rodriguez came back Thursday, okay, great for him. He came back Thursday, uh, his debut, uh, five innings, six Ks and three earned runs, and zero walks. So would I like to see the innings go up? Yeah, but he's coming back from, from injury. So I think he's going to have to you know, build that momentum in order for the Red Sox to stay in games. Now, the 5-1-4 ERA on the road is troubling for me, but the opponent's batting average is 217. And so if I was to put it in perspective, I think, it's when these things happen, when these home runs happen. And because you know these are home runs. I mean, batting 217 for the opponent <laughs> and a, a 514 ERA. It's all about timing. It's about when those type of things happen. So I look at that and say, okay, you know, the Red Sox have, um, you know, pitching inconsistencies, but it's not hurting them. It's not hurting them right now, but we'll see what happens as we get later in the year. Uh, a shout out to um, Nick Pavetta. You know, Nick Pavetta's 327 ERA, two wins and two starts. He's been a, a gigantic surprise. Everybody talks about him being the number three pitcher um, everywhere he goes, but he's showing right now that he could be, you know, at least for now, either a two guy or a three guy uh, until Chris Sale starts to, you know, get back into his rhythm uh, when he comes back from injury. Um, Eddie Rodriguez, when he starts you know, being capable of doing what he does, and Nathan Avaldi. So Nick Pavetta is exactly what the Red Sox need in order to stay afloat. But their offense does help. 
You know, you talk about their offense. They're hitting 3-2-5 at the plate away from home. That is shockingly surprising because if you look at, and this is why they're doing well, because if you look at struggling teams, they always do well at home because they can count on, you know, their, um, I guess, regimen and their schedules and, you know, the way that they go about their business every single day, whether that's practice, whether that's preparing for games, batting practice, you know, feeling the rhythm of, you know, their swing, the air. I look at that and say the three-two-five away from home may be as, as impressive as going 500 at home because you're finding a way to win games. And if you can find a way to win games, which they've done offensively, I think they're in great hands moving forward. Obviously, you know, the pitching needs to be better. But again, if we're talking about one of their weaknesses, it's their strikeouts. Their strikeouts, I mean, they're averaging like eight per game offensively. So they need to be more patient at the plate. Bobby Dahlbeck has to get his head on straight. Um, You know, Vasquez has been tremendous. Um, I, he's always been a great hitter, defensive-minded catcher too, but he's always been able to you know, have a bat at the plate. Xander Bogarts, Devers, J.D. Martinez, as I said, Verdugo's come along, um, at least hitting the ball, you know, not striking out um, as much. But, it, it, again, I think Raphael Devers needs to most certainly get his act together because he's going to be a guy that the Red Sox will need. And he's at 250, but you know he's hit four home runs, and I think it's around uh, 10 RBIs on the season. So he's done well, but we need to make sure that we don't get ahead of ourselves uh, when we say strikeouts are okay to happen offensively. You gotta be patient. At, you gotta be patient at the plate. That is one A to being a successful team um, offensively. And just to close out the, the Red Sox point here in the podcast, if I'm the Red Sox, I'm looking at their ability offensively is perfectly fine. They don't have an issue offensively. They'll always be you know, top five, top ten, especially this year. I feel like they just, they've hit it well and they've seen the ball well. And you know, the hitting mechanics has been you know, pure. Their um, hitting stroke seems to be on time. J.D. Martinez is now looking at tablets and, you know, making sure that his swing is back to form. And, of course, that always helps. But, again, I go back to it. It's the player's manager. The player, a player's manager makes you feel good. Bravo and props to the Red Sox so far um, throughout this stretch. They've won a, a significant amount of games throughout the stretch. I believe it's six now in a row. Uh, that You know, the six and three on the season. The Red Sox have it offensively. The Bruins need to create consistency on the ice and make some you know chemistry happen um, offensively. They need it. 2.72 goals is just not enough um, to secure yourself um, a high playoff seed in, in uh, the NHL playoffs. And, and then, you know, the Celtics. The Celtics need to, you know, they're consistently bad sometimes throughout games. And that can never happen because if they get into that mode, if they get into that demeanor, that's when you start tailing down and becoming a bad team. You can't get in your head, and you've got to be ready at all times, every single game. Even if you're not playing, 
You still got to be there for your teams. We have to talk about how the Celtics need to be a team. They need to be a team and care you know, when, when guys do well, when guys don't do well. And I, I've seen it recently, really quick. I've seen it recently with Jalen Brown approaching Jason Tatum and saying, okay, if you look at what we're putting on the court, it hasn't been, it hasn't been good. We got to do us, right? Jalen Brown has said, we got to be the best versions of Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown. And so props to Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum to, to get together and figure that out. Because a coach isn't going to do that. It's the players that will, will catch stride and make sure that they're ready at all times. Now, Brad Stevens has to have you know, his mind correct because we can't have, we got to play better basketball every single time post-game interview happens. That just can't happen. Post-game interviews with Brad Stevens are probably the most boring thing ever because it's the same song and dance. When they lose, we got to play better. We're not playing our brand of basketball. And we've seen a little passion from it recently. And kudos for him to get out of his comfort zone slightly. But he needs to ultimately make this team energized. Every single game. And I know it's a long season. It's been, you know, with the COVID situation. And last season, you know, coming in for a a short break um, doesn't help uh, for any team. Especially if you're dealing with injuries. But... Let's just be honest, the Celtics are better than this. Two games above 500. Last night's game was shockingly surprising in my eyes. I thought they were going to lose because they were down, what, 16, 17, uh, late in the second quarter, you know, close to halftime. And then the struggles happened, you know, early in the third, and then they caught stride finally in the middle of the third. But that's the type of situation that I'm talking about. They can't have that happen. They ultimately need to secure a model of, I can do it. Even if we're down slightly, we got to get back into form. We got to get back on defense. We got to get back in rotations. We got to find open players and make shots. And it, it's basketball can sometimes be an easy sport if you do it together. If you're not doing it together, that's when people are standing around, shrugging their shoulder waiting for the ball to come to them, and that's just never a good thing. So, again, Celtics need to secure their consistency and make sure that they don't go down big early in games because late in games, that's when you play catch-up. Sometimes you win the catch-up game. Sometimes you don't. So next week, we're going to talk about the NFL draft. I'm a Miami Dolphin fan. We got two first-rounders, two first-round picks in this year's draft. I think the Patriots have number 15th pick. We can all kind of get the consensus of what one and two will be. We don't know what three and the rest will be, but in my eyes, I think it's going to be, you know, entertaining drafts as always. A lot of people don't like to draft, but I kind of look at it and say, you know, I guess these players are just names. Wait until they perform, and then we can evaluate because you look at Patrick Mahomes, Kansas City Chiefs had eyes on him the entire way. No other team did. The Saints might have. But, I mean, no other team was interested in Patrick Mahomes. And look what he turned out to be. Top five players usually don't, you know, turn out. I think, like, I forget the stat. I think it's, like, around 40 45% of the top five players actually perform well in the NFL when they get to that stage. 
Shout out to Chris Gray real quick, and we'll finish. Chris Greer, my goodness. He should just, you know, have a statue in Houston, right? Bill O'Brien should have a statue in Miami, and Chris Greer should have the ability to get a statue in Houston because he pulled off a winning trade. So I look at that and say, that's good for the Miami Dolphins moving forward, and their future will be solidified as long as Tua Tungvaloa and Brian Flores can catch stride. But again, I'll save it for the NFL draft talk, and we have a lot to talk about. I'll go through my mock draft. I'll probably do top 15, top 20 picks, and then we'll get into what players I think will be stars and what players I think will not be as good, and they might be overrated early in the draft. So again, thanks for tuning in. Everyone have a great night. Talk soon.